0: Well, thanks, Richard. Thanks for the generous introduction. Thanks to you all for being here and Nautilus Institute for bringing us together. Thanks particularly to give me the privilege of sharing a platform with Rolf Akayas, who's been a wonderful warrior for disarmament and multiple other global public policy causes over many years now, someone for whom I have the utmost uh, affection and respect, and it's great to be uh, here with him sharing this platform today. Rolf was, of course, a member of the Canberra Commission in 96, and. I think the single thing the Canberra Commission is going to be most remembered for quite properly is just a three-sentence mantra at absolutely the core of its conclusions, which Rolf hinted at, but I think it's worth spelling out again. And those three sentences were as follows. So long as anyone has nuclear weapons, others will want them. So long as anyone possesses nuclear weapons, they are bound one day to be used by accident or miscalculation, if not by deliberate design. And any such use would be catastrophic for our world as we know it. That's the core of the story in three sentences. And the truth of the matter is that we did survive the Cold War years by sheer dumb luck. It is really an absolute miracle that we got through that extraordinary period each side bristling with weapons aimed at each other, without something going very badly wrong. And we simply can't assume that that dumb luck is going to continue in the future. The truth of the matter in terms of the risks, the threats that are out there, is that they are very substantial indeed. Four things. One, we have the existing nuclear-armed states. Possessing between them now 23,000 nuclear warheads, each with a destructive capacity many times Hiroshima and Nagasaki over. 10,000 of those weapons are actually operationally deployed. 3,000 of them have some kind of launch-ready status. 2,000 of them are still extraordinarily on a hair-trigger alert. Launch on warning, giving the President of Russia, the President of the United States, in the event of information coming in that... A nuclear attack is being mounted from the other side. Something we have between four and eight minutes to make the decision to respond. And it's not just a matter of flocks of geese uh, confusing radar operators in this day and age. We do, of course, have the potential for very, very sophisticated cyber attack, cyber simulation. And God knows how much more sophisticated that stuff's going to get in the future. We also now that, know that a number of the presently nuclear-armed states don't have anything like the sophistication in their own command and control arrangements as the United States and, and Russia still, to a reasonable extent, do. So you've got one huge continuing problem just at that level. Secondly, of course, you've got the problem of proliferation, which uh, has now come back and stared us in the face since India and Pakistan joined Israel among the three big countries now outside the NPT acquiring weapons back in the late 90s and now with the issues in Iran North Korea and the potential possibly uh, for a cascade of further proliferation if we don't find a way of holding the line. We've got the problem of terrorist capability, which can't be sneezed at post-11. We know about the intention that's out there from various millenarian groups. The capacity to translate that into nuclear attack is probably a bit more limited than some of the more alarmist accounts would suggest, but it's nonetheless real. The is out there. We know from the A.Q. Khan story uh, how possible it is to get hold of this material through back channels. We know that it's possible to assemble a Hiroshima scale device in the back of a a large truck. We know it's possible to drive it into the center of any large city in the world and explode such a device with hundreds of thousands of deaths and casualties following. It's not a huge probability. But it's certainly a possibility, and it's out there, and we have to try and deal with it. And the final issue, of course, that's making the world a a rather alarming place at the moment is um, the probability of very substantial increase in civil nuclear energy. Uh, Whatever the merits of that NGO community differs on that subject, um, it is unquestionably going to result probably in a doubling of um, at least of civil uh, power reactors around the world, within the next uh, 20 or so years, and that is going to mean, particularly if a lot more countries get into the business of manufacturing their own fissile material, many more opportunities for proliferation. So the question is, in this sort of environment, what on earth can we do about it uh, politically, apart from just generally fulminating on occasions like this? Well, basically, the the initiatives and the the effort has to come from three different levels. It has to come, obviously, top down for a start. Russia and the United States possess, between them, 95% About 22,000 of the 23 uh, weapons, more than 95% of those that are out there. And if we're going to get real leadership in a dramatic move towards um, abolition, it's got to come in the first instance from those two countries. But secondly, there's got to be peer group movement as well. There's got to be Leadership and energy and input momentum developed by the great mass of other countries, the non nuclear weapon states, the lesser nuclear powers, who all are have to go to make a major contribution if we are going to get not only effective non proliferation measures put in place, but again, serious moves towards disarmament. And the third thing that's uh, got to happen is the development <coughs> again of a significant civil society movement from the bottom up. Governments we know all too well are occasionally capable of doing the right thing, but usually only after all other available alternatives are exhausted. And it is the role and responsibility of civil society to keep governments honest in this respect, to make clear uh, what the the role is, what the responsibilities are, so far as these great issues of policy. And without that pressure from below is not too many governments that will do the right thing. So where does this? Japan, Australia, (coughs) new nuclear commission fit in, in a world which has had many such uh, commissions and panels of this kind. (coughs) It's essentially to try and energize (coughs) a global political debate at a high level, in essence, to energize that constituency of governments out there who not only the United States and Russia, but who collectively must act and must effect, act effectively if we're going to get movement. <clears throat> the notion that you can do this with just a, a handful of countries um, showing the way uh, is a complete misperception. You're not going to get negotiations uh, moving or consummated in Geneva on the fissile material issue. You're not going to get the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty actually fully um, ratified by all the necessary countries. You're not going to have the IEA Board of Governors making the right decisions. You're not going to have the Security Council doing what it has to do, unless you've got buy-in from many more countries than just that small handful at the center. And the real role, if you want to put it in a nutshell, of this commission uh, that I'm co-chairing with my Japanese foreign ministerial colleague is to energize that sort of global constituency, hopefully at the same time uh, having an impact on what Russia and the United States do. And the commission has already met in both Moscow and Washington with that object in mind. And also we hope, of course, to energize a civil society constituency and give you the ammunition to work away at away and uh, burrow away at these issues um, sort of up from below. What may make a difference so far as this commission is concerned, compared with um, many others in the past, I think are, are several factors, if I can just mention them very, very rapidly. First of all is the timing. Uh, we do have a sense that for the first time in modern history, we're. We're uh, actually riding a wave rather than resisting a tide, and it's a good place to be in terms of articulating a way forward. I think the Commission itself is very representative in its composition, its membership, quite high level. We've got people like Bill Perry, the former US Secretary of State, and one of the famous uh, Gang of Four who's um, Op-ed was so important, as Rolf has said, in energising a new sense of momentum out there. A couple of years ago, we've got people like Gru Bruntland, the former Norwegian uh, Prime Minister, also on the commission, and a hugely uh, influential figure worldwide. Many others of that stature and standing. So it's got the representative and the leadership quality about it in terms of its membership. It's got the timeliness, as I said, and I think it's got an, an attitude to the resolution of these problems that will actually prove quite helpful. Because what we're trying to do is chart a course on this which is very realistic, very pragmatic, as well as idealistic. We're certainly not letting the the beacon stop shining in terms of the ultimate objectives, but we're very, very conscious of the constraints that are out there in the real world on all the major policy issues that are going to have to be wrestled with. And we're trying to craft the report in such a way that indicates that we're well aware of that, but there are still ways through it. Uh, again, finally, in the way in which we uh, we write the report, um, it won't just be pragmatic as well as idealistic, but we are trying to write it, and I'm trying to write it at the moment, in a way that's genuinely accessible to a non-specialist technical audience. The trouble is, the Canberra Commission was very good in this respect. You can't quite say that of many of the other reports that have been produced, which are basically wonks talking to other wonks and going right over the heads of most of the policymakers whose views, uh, whose, whose imagination really, has to be captured, and his attention certainly has to be captured by what we're saying. And the final thing to say in that context is we're going to write the report in a way that will be very action-oriented, not just a laundry list of should should shoulds, but yes, you should, within this time frame and with this kind of priority, try to achieve this kind of result and use this as a foundation for uh, something next. So very action-plan-oriented. I can't say much about what the uh, recommendations of the report are going to be. We're still in the process as a commission of wrestling with them. Uh, But let me give you just uh, in in three or four minutes, because I want to allow plenty of time for questions, a sketch of some of the major themes that will be coming through. We're organizing the action plan essentially around a time frame of short term, medium term, long term. The short term we're defining as the next four years, through to 2012, medium term through to 2025, and the longer term beyond that, 2025, Perhaps doesn't sound too medium, sounds a long way away, but given the pace at which these things move, given the complexity of the issues, it's actually a pretty short time to be doing what we want to do in that frame. But in the short term, the immediate priority is obviously next year's NPT review conference, and the Commission is going to come up with a very um, sharply defined uh, package of priority measures that we believe uh, should be agreed at that conference. Uh, one is obviously a set of measures to strengthen the NPT regime itself, particularly the compliance, verification, enforcement side of it. And the IAA, International Atomic Energy Agency, is the relevant institution. We'll have very specific things to say about that. But what we also want the NPT conference next year to do is to come up with a rearticulation of basically... An action plan for disarmament, not just focusing on the non proliferation side, but on the disarmament side to try and get everyone signed up to uh, a set of propositions about what should happen in the way forward, rather similar to the famous 13 practical steps of 2000, which were a big step forward in getting the weapon states in particular to recognise the responsibilities, but which slipped off the agenda during the rather desolate Bush years that followed. And uh, at the last review conference, as most of you will know, there was no agreement on anything at all. We want to recapture that momentum on the disarmament side as well as the nonproliferation side. Other things to try and do in the short term uh, of course, <coughs> try and move on this fissile material. Our treaty in Geneva, about which we can talk in more detail, presumably later on in the day, if people are interested in that. Uh, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, it's crucial to try and get those votes in the US Senate, uh, and in turn the other hold out countries to ratify it bring it finally into force it's crucial to get some real momentum sustained in the u.s Russia uh, bilateral disarmament talks uh, which are going on this year and uh, for which the the atmosphere looks good uh, but they're still only going to at best uh, reduce the number of strategically deployed weapons down to 1500 which will still leave um, The total number of warheads existing in the U.S. arsenal uh, well over 8,000 so we've got some distance to go with equivalent numbers on the Russian side. It's crucial that we begin uh, in that same context uh, at least to prepare the ground for a multilateral disarmament phase bringing in the other key players, um, China and France, the UK, as well as, of course, India, Pakistan, and Israel. And that's going to be a labor of Hercules, going to take a long time, but we've got to prepare the ground for that with studies and dialogue, and the Commission will have lots to say about that. We also need to do, in the short term, uh, is really make some progress on the issue of nuclear doctrine. Uh, the question about what the role, what the salience of nuclear weapons are. Barack Obama has foreshadowed this as, in his Prague speech as one of the big things that has to happen. The world has to change its psychology, the sort of thing that Ralph was saying as well in his uh, opening speech, change the psychology about nuclear weapons to de-legitim- delegitimize them, get to a stage where they're much, much reduced in their, um, in their degree of acceptance as, as core to countries um, security planning. Uh, But to do that will amount to a major change because the United States itself, dating particularly since the last Strategic Posture Review, uh, has got an approach uh, to nuclear weapons, uh, essentially of keeping the option open for using them for anything at all, uh, not just to deter other people using nuclear weapons against it or its allies. The issue of extended – and what we hope, of course, is that in the context of the present Posture Review, uh, which is due for completion early next year, that the U.S., Uh, apart from addressing a lot of other very specific things about the operation of its nuclear forces, will in fact take the step at the very least of signing up to a proposition that the sole purpose, quote unquote, the sole purpose of nuclear weapons, so long as they exist on the planet, is to deter their use by others. If the U.S. does lead the way in that respect, because most of the other nuclear weapon states have not made a similar declaration or made a similar commitment, this will be extremely important in generating the kind of momentum that we need. This, of course, has very direct and immediate um, resonance to the debate about extended deterrence, Japan, Australia, other U.S. allies. Uh, I don't think the... This is an issue the Commission is wrestling with. It's quite sensitive because um, there's still quite a bit of sentiment out in a number of places that um, really nuclear weapons, uh, so long as they exist, should be kept available to deal with non-nuclear threats as well as nuclear ones. Um, That's an issue which uh, the Commission is wrestling with. I think there's a fair chance we'll eventually um, decide that it's just an impossible position uh, to be in, uh, to be arguing for a world without nuclear weapons, without even being prepared uh, to take the the first step of saying that... um, the sole purpose of these things should be to deter nukes. Whatever you think about the viability and the legitimacy of that deterrence doctrine itself, at the very least we ought to be able to agree that that's as far as deterrence doctrine should go for the foreseeable future. I don't think Australia will have any trouble uh, with that kind of statement at all. Whether others will uh, remains to be seen. That's all the short term. The medium term is... Uh, Really, where the disarmament action has to really gain momentum. And what we're arguing for is a world by 2025, 15 years out from next year, where we haven't got to zero. We don't think that'll be realisable in that timeframe. That would be wildly optimistic. But a world at least where we've reached what what we're going to, I think, call the minimisation point. Very, very low numbers of nuclear weapons compared to those that exist at the moment widespread acceptance of a doctrine of sole purpose that I've just described, or better still, a doctrine of no first use, which is a sharper version of sole purpose, and actual deployments of those weapons which are wholly consistent uh, with that doctrine, and certainly launch readiness a status wholly consistent with it. It would be great if the doctrinal stuff and the deployment stuff and the launch readiness stuff uh, could be addressed much, much sooner than 2025, and notionally it can be, the numbers stuff is going to take much longer. But that, we are saying, is that the target objective you know, to get to that kind of status uh, by then. Then the longer term, post-2025, is the the task there is, of course, to, to move to, to final abolition, to move from the, the minimum point um, to the actual zero. I don't think the Commission is going to be feel able to articulate a particular target date for this. Others have been braver in the NGO community uh, worldwide, uh, but we think the geopolitical conditions that are going to have to be satisfied as well as the technical uh, conditions about verification and so on that are going to have to be satisfying are just so complex, so mind-bogglingly big at the moment that it would just defy credibility to say that all these things are going to slot into place or could slot into place by a certain date. But importantly, I think it is critical that we be, as a Commission, very, very clear about what those conditions actually are and do still map a course to the final outcome. It has been the case that um, some of the the groups that, including the, the Gang of Four and the U.S. and others who sail with them, have been a little unwilling to do more than focus on getting to the, the minimization point, the base camp, if you like, on the climbing the mountain analogy, the vantage point, to use the terminology of the Gang of Four. And they've really been a bit inclined to say, well, the mountaintop after that is, is really so shrouded in mist, we can't say anything specific about it. I think the view that the Commission will take is it might be still some distance away, that mountain top, but we can't leave it shrouded in mist. We have to let the sunlight very, very sharply focus on it. It has to be a beacon to which we aim and to which we motivate ourselves and generate the maximum amount of continued practical effort uh, to get there. Lots of things we can do in that respect. That's more detail than I've got time for now. I'll shut up and let you get on with questions. But let me just say one final thing. Although the task is huge, there's absolutely no doubt about it, there's so many different pieces that have got to come together, I, for one, remain optimistic, as I do on so many uh, international fronts, uh, that progress is possible and the ultimate goal is achievable. And certainly in this respect, I think it is very encouraging that everything we know about global public opinion might have been a bit complacent about this issue. It might not be very energized and mobilized on this issue. That's your job, among others, to change that. But when scratched, when actually asked in global opinion polls, Do people want a world without nuclear weapons? Do they want to see them eliminated? It is extraordinary. Every single global opinion poll that's been done, including a very important one at the end of last year, comes up with extraordinarily positive figures for every country in which this is tested around the world. Even Pakistan, where people love nukes. Uh, The government certainly does. The military certainly does. And the population has been imbued with a sense that they're needed for strategic parity and so on with India. The mood is there. The mood is there to be captured. And I think the final word of so often um, deserves to be uh, with Dwight Eisenhower, US President, who uh, I think has been underappreciated for some of the very sensible things he said, along with some of the other things he did, and in particular has underappreciated for that wonderful remark of his that I think people want peace so much that one of these days, governments had better get out of the way and let them have it. I think that is the story that's there to be told so far as nuclear weapons concern, concerned. And it's our collective responsibility to advance it. Thank you.